Hi, it's Susa, compulsive overeater. Hi. Hi, thank you so much, Ben, for asking me to speak. And um, I've known Ben a very long time. And I was supposed to actually speak last week, but my work schedule is very, I work on call, so I never know when I'm going to be called out. And I canceled on him last minute. And he was able to graciously get another speaker and book me for this week. So thank you. I apologize for the inconvenience. Hi. Welcome, newcomers. I'm so nervous. My hands are sweating and sticking to the recorder. Um, I have been in program since 1998. I celebrated 18 years of abstinence in May, so I'm coming up on 19. I, a day at a time. My top weight was almost 200 pounds by 16. I currently fluctuate between a 10 and a 12. Uh, right now, closer like to 10 and a half, 12. I have an ankle injury, so exercise has been a little more difficult. And my work schedule makes eating, um, I have to be very conscious of what goes in my mouth. Because if I've been working for 30 hours, I think I need five meals, and I actually don't. <laughs> I actually need three meals and maybe a piece of fruit. So it, it's a constant um, calibration and titration and talking to my sponsor and bringing God in. I came into the program because I couldn't stop eating. I found food very, very young, and I think I'm brilliant for doing that because I found the most convenient most accessible and most good girl (laughs) drug that there was in my home and that was food and it was always in abundance it was always a combination of sugar and salt uh, high carbs big volume and actually high carbs high protein high vegetables it didn't really matter I'm a volume (laughs) I'm a volume eater So um, while I've binged on sugar, I've also binged on vegetables, and I've also had a 40-ounce steak. You know, I I eat like a trucker is is like my my DNA sort of eating. And it was rough. You know, I I was born in Iran in the late 70s when the revolution happened, and then we left, and we went to the U.K., and there weren't very many people who looked like me where we were. So I constantly had this feeling of I'm different which then turned into, I'm not good enough, which as the weight came on, turned into, I'm different, I'm not good enough, and I'm a piece of shit. And then it turned into the disease of, if, when. If I lose the weight, then. If this, then that. If I get another degree, then. If I marry the perfect person, then. If, and even, you know, when Ben asked me to speak like last month, I was like, if I lose 10 pounds, then I'll be a really good speaker. <laughs> you know? And you know what happens when I try to lose 10 pounds? My meals get bigger. It's just, it's the, the number one way for me to gain weight is to think about losing weight. Because that's just, I'm not normal when it comes to that. Um, my household was, you know, it was interesting. I don't want to spend too much time, time on the past, but... My mom was doing the best she could. She was a depressive. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, There was about eight years of severe incest. Um, Then one day I went to school, and I came home, and I found my mom dead on the floor. And she was 38, and I was 13. So, and and it was, when when I go back, you know, if I ever tell someone the full story of the day that that happened, it's like you can't write that stuff. You know, that's just how powerful it was, and that feeling of, never having seen a dead person, 
and not knowing like what to do next. My father wasn't in the country. He had come to America to set up because we were going to emigrate. And I had a seven-year-old brother. So I went from everything that was going on in the house, which was already dysfunctional, to now having to bury my mom and move to the States within about two weeks. So we sat Shiva and we moved to Beverly Hills. <laughs> and here I was among all these Persian people and uh, my Farsi got really good and all my curse words came to life. Um, and I was still the different one. I was still the one who emigrated. I was still the one who talked differently. I was still the one who didn't have a mother. Not many people in eighth grade didn't have a mother. I was the only one. So the food played a really important role because the food was there. The food coated the nerves. The food, it did for me what any narcotic would do for the drug addict. And I can tell you, like when I was about to start a binge, it was like put on that tourniquet and just put it in my veins. And it came in the form of pumpkin size pumpkins of candy, not pumpkin size, legit pumpkins of candy filled with Halloween. And I would start with the ones I liked best, and before I knew it, I was like eating the licorice. And I'm like, <laughs> but you know, it was there. And so this went on in high school, and I got married very young, and I married a lovely, normal human being who did not know what he was getting himself into. And... Um, and I used to say that it was serendipity, but I've, I've started to claim some power and say, you know what, I chose him. I did choose him. I must have had some sense at some point to be like, this is a loving, normal man. And so we got married and my weight was going up and down and up and down and I was binging. And, and you know how you can like smell alcohol on an alcoholic? He could like see the binge on me. So he would be home, he'd come home and he'd be like, shit, she's stoned. Stoned. And he didn't know what to do. He was like, do I, like, do you want a treadmill? Like, <laughs> how, like, how can I help you with this? Poor guy, like, didn't, didn't know overeating from overeat, you know, overgambling. So he's just a normie, you know? And so he, we did. We bought a Stairmaster. It didn't work. And um, my weight went up and down. And I binged. And I had a kid. And I went through severe postpartum depression which is part of my, you know, impetus to do the work that I do today. But, but the postpartum depression, there's a couple times in my life where I battle depression to the point of, I think I'm going to end it because it's just unbearable. And that was one of the times when, when I had my kid and I was eating and I, I couldn't stop. And then I went on a diet and I lost 40 pounds and I went back to school and, and, and this constant up and down began to affect my marriage. To the point that you guys have heard this in my story, but I'll tell you for those who didn't know, um, there was a one point in my marriage where I was so checked out that my husband thought I was having an affair. And he sat me down and he was like, look, Deuce, like, I know we have a kid together, but if, if you're cheating, then just go. Let's just end it. Like, we don't, we don't have to stay in this marriage because you're not here. So if you're with another guy and he's taking up your fantasies and you're spending time with him, let's end it. I'm okay with it. Go. And guys, there was no man. Okay? There was no man. What there was was self-obsession, self-hatred, food, promises made to myself that were never made. 
getting on the scale, getting off the scale, 14,000 calories, 800 calories. Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers and what was that Gloria Marshall crap that shook your body until you lost weight. Um, and, and, and thousands of dollars paid. You know, Jeannie used to say, a compulsive overeater with a checkbook is a dangerous animal. You know? And it was like, can you help me here? You know, will you, I even went to this woman who like wafted her hands over me and was like, you cannot eat chocolate or beef. I was like, I'm not sure that's the problem, but okay. Uh, here's $1,200. Um, so it, it, it got bad. And, and my daughter was having a, you know, those $1 world famous chocolate sales. And I was president of the chocolate drive. And because sounds like a good idea and I think by the I think I sold like a hundred and something dollars of one dollar chocolates but I sold them mostly to myself yeah. and I was eating you know I was like downing them it was like it was like a carrot stick you know there was no I couldn't stop and so one night I said to my friend Rose I said you know Rose I think I had 13 chocolate bars last night and she was like ew I was like well you say ew but it's kind of normal for me and she's like well did you feel gross? I was like, no. <laughs> Did you throw it up? I was like, no. Did I hate myself? Did I want to kill myself? Did I want to stop, but I couldn't? Yes. And so she was like, go to OA. And she was my Eskimo. And I didn't, because I think OA is the unsexiest name for a program ever. I was like, Overeaters Anonymous. Yeah. Um, but I came and I listened and I got a little bit. I got some. I got some. I got like relief. That's what I got. I didn't work the program, but I got relief because I was sitting in the rooms and I could identify like, yeah, I felt like that and I felt like that. And God, these people are getting better. To this day, if I doubt my recovery, I have to look at your recovery. Because I know some of you came in and y'all were crazy. And today you're not. Right? So if, that, if that's you, then that's probably me. Because I came in and I was a raving lunatic. And I was rageful. And I was angry. And a lot of my anger had to do with, no one understands me. No one gets me. I'm unique. I'm special. I've had this crazy history. You don't see my goodness. You just don't. And so I ate until you saw it. Right? And it was funny because it would be like, hey, Ellie, I lost four pounds this week. Can you tell? You know, and she'd be like, um, yeah, you look great. You know, but it was, it was like nobody cared, really. But I, but I always thought that they did. I always thought that they did. Um, so let's see what happened. I came into the rooms. I stopped coming into the rooms. I got pregnant with my second kid, and I found myself... Resentful that my husband was working one weekend and binging on leftover matzah and a tub of butter. To the extent that the matzah got in my hair, the, the butter got in my hair, but I, I couldn't stop the binge long enough to go wipe it out. So then I just continued the binge with like putrid butter smell in my hair. And that's why my abstinence date is May 12th, because it came right after Passover that year, because I still had leftover moths in the house. Um, and I called Jeannie, and, and I don't know if you guys know Jeannie, but Jeannie had a lot of recovery and a lot of weight loss, and I called her, and I said, and I was terrified of her. And I said, Jeannie, I cannot stop eating. I need you to help me. Be my sponsor. And she's like, too, so I'm sponsoring all these people, but 
here's a woman who can who can sponsor you. So I was like, fine. So I called her. I think I called her like four times that day, poor lady. And she was at work and at school and doing her life. And she was abstinent four years. And we got together. We, we met over coffee. And that's all she got was coffee, which was baffling to me. Because like in a restaurant, you get more than coffee. But she just got coffee. And um, she was normal body weight. And she was serene. And she told me that she was abstinent and she was in a marriage, she was in grad school, she was starting getting graduated and started looking for a job and she sponsored me for nine years and she took my calls every day at 8.45 in the morning and 3.45 in the afternoon and we started working steps together and the weight came off and I built a, I built a posse and I built a foundation for my life and I started to change. And Apparently, I don't really remember how horrific I was, but there are plenty of people in my family who could tell you. Um, and when it came down to making amends, I made amends to, to an aunt of mine who I said to her, you know, I, I read her my amends and I, I truly apologized for my awful behavior. And she said, you know what, Atisa, I've come to expect very little from you, so it's fine. And that's how it was. And today, that relationship is one of respect and love and camaraderie and honesty, something that could not have happened 19 years ago. Um, I had a lot of resentments. I had the kind of resentments where I wanted people to be like run over by 24-wheel trucks, not just like little resentments, like I wanted them hurt. And a lot of it stemmed out of, you know, when I came... And, and when I came out and I told my family about what had happened, um, pretty much nobody believed me. Nobody believed me. And, and the day that I told them, the next day I became paralyzed. So I couldn't walk for about two weeks. I was like paralyzed from the waist down. And one of my aunts came to visit and she said to me, you know, people who lie about what their fathers have done to them, this is what God does. Okay. So that was, and not to get into that whole soft story, but I wanted to tell you about the level of resentment of not being heard and not being believed and not being trusted and, and being a kid and losing my mom and raising a seven-year-old and getting married when I was so young and having a kid and nobody got me. And so I ate. Actually, when I was, when I, was I, I literally could not walk for two weeks for no reason, for no reason other than psychosomaticism. Um, just from the stress of all of that. Today, all of those people are in my life. All of those people have been forgiven. I have moved forward with them, and even with my father, who I was estranged from for, for almost since the time that I've been married. I was able to show up at his funeral, pay for his care at the end of life, help my family deal with the, with the funeral costs, speak with grace and eloquence at his funeral only because of this program and not be sitting in my house 300 pounds eating at the family who didn't get me. And that is what program has gotten me because sometimes I, I like start to judge myself and I, and I have to tell this story because I've been thinking about it a lot apparently. Um, a few years ago I spoke at a meeting 
And when I was done, this woman, I think a couple of you were there, it was traumatizing. This woman comes up to me and she goes, at this meeting, we qualify how much weight we've lost. And I was like, oh, well, it's done now. Look, I'm (laughs) kind of done speaking. And she goes, do you even have any physical weight loss? Okay. All right. (laughs) So I got in the car. I was livid. First thing I did, call my sponsor. Okay. Then I called the woman. And I said to her, I was like, look, what are you, what are you thinking? Right, what, what, right? And she's like, well, you know, OA is my life. If I eat, I die. You know, I need to make sure that speakers are qualified, blah, 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 blah. And then I cried. Then I got rageful. I went through all the different emotions, right? And then it really made me take an inventory of my program. Am I abstinent? Absolutely. I have not binged in 19 years, coming up on 19 years. And, and my other thing that I don't eat is butter or margarine. I know that seems silly, like a silly abstinence. But guys, if I pick up butter or margarine, it is over. It's over. It is out. Like I'm out, you know. Um, and, and it was very powerful to me how important it is to have that one thing. Well, binging would make it over. But also this, this butter and margarine. I had been working for many, many hours. And I work in childbirth, okay, which is emotionally, spiritual, and physically depleting right woman has her baby after like 36 hours and her mom very lovingly brings food and makes me a I think it was like a French baguette with butter something and she's like here love like join us and I was like if I eat it it's over I haven't slept in three days but if I eat it it's over and I was like thank you so much like I'm really good I'm gonna go home and have a meal so, so it became really important to me to have that, you know, thing that I hold on to. Um, how does it look like today? Life is busy. I'm, I'm back in school. I'm on call. I have three kids. I have one abstinent baby um, who I was abstinent through her pregnancy and through her life. And she, like, talks, you know, 12-step jargon and, you know, sets things back to me and tells me I need a meeting. And um, <laughs> um, as, as, does my, as does my husband. You know, there are times where he's like, do you want to go to a meeting? <laughs> Isn't there one on Sundays? <laughs> like, I'll watch the kids go. Um, I was 20, what, 26 when I got abstinent. I'm 44. Uh, it's a big life change. I have a son-in-law. Like, I, I'm, I, you know, life has evolved. Um, it's a busy time in my life. It's been hard to get to my three meetings. It's always been three meetings, two, um, two service commitments, always been sponsored and have always sponsored. Always. So now it's more like one to two meetings, still do a lot of service. I still sponsor a group of women. I'm sponsored. So when Heidi moved to Ohio and selfishly got married and had a child, um, I started working with Leslie that very, very same day because I couldn't stand the concept of not being sponsored. I knew I would be out. And Leslie sponsored me for nine plus, And she's in two programs. I think she sponsors 15 women. And she talks the talk and walks the walk. I'm working step three with her and step three with my current sponsees. So we're all going through the 12 steps again. Um, The food. There are times where it doesn't call. There are times where it doesn't call. But man, when it calls, it calls. (laughs) And I know the number one way to answer the call is to get on a scale and make a resolution. Because that's always been my way. Like, buy this, buy my daughter's wedding. You know, for my daughter's wedding, I did not lose weight. 
I think I was one of the few mothers of the bride who showed up and had a dress made in exactly the body that I'm in. But you know what? I was in my body. I was enjoying the moment. I was walking my daughter down the aisle. I was enjoying my friends and being with God and being where my feet are at that wedding. Had I been a size six, could I have done it? I don't know. Not if I was starving and hating myself. (laughs) That's for sure. Um, I've also made like very distinct decisions. I became a little um, obsessed with that show, This Is Us. And like watching it and crying and crying and crying and like mad, like sexual fantasy crush on Milo, um, like stalking him on the internet. And then, and then I was like, you know what? This is not same behavior. Like this is just not. And that whole of like looking in the past and coming to the future and looking in the past, which is how that show is made, is they keep going back to the childhood and then coming back to the present. I can't do that in recovery. I can't do that. First of all, I can't have a a gray cloud of sadness over me because of some show that NBC made, which is like emotional. Someone called it emotional porn. I think it's emotional rape. Okay. And so, and I was like, and it's weird to have a crush on some guy when I'm happily married, right? Um, I don't need that for today. I need to be where my feet are because my disease is always looking in the past, looking in the future, right? I was wronged. My life's going to go to shit. That, that's just sort of where I am. And the truth is that, like, when I'm where my feet are, things are pretty good, right? Is work hard? Is my family acclimating? Do I have moments? Am I getting older? Yes. But the real says, you're too old to go back to school. Your knees are hurting because you're old. It's probably arthritis, right? You're going to get divorced because your husband isn't going to put up with this. So far, he said nothing about not putting up with this, but I've written the story, you see, right? Or I live in the past. Why did it happen? Why did it happen to me? Why does it happen to so many of these women? And I can tell you that I would, as a result of this program, I wouldn't change one thing that's happened to me. Not one, because that makes me who I am. And it's the third step prayer. Right? That victory over them, my, my troubles, may bear witness to those I would help. How can I bear witness if I haven't actually gone through that thing that I can then hold someone else's hand as they go through? That's it. Thanks for having me. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of OA as a whole. When asking questions, you don't need to identify yourself. Uh, We are being recorded. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. I will restate the question and we'll go to 935. Yeah. Any questions? Yes. Thanks. Can you talk about God and your relationship, particularly um, in relation to some of the bad things that happened in your childhood that you shared? Can I talk about God, uh, particularly in relationship to some of the things that happened in my childhood that weren't so great? Uh, yeah, I grew up um, going to religious school, but my parents didn't believe in religion. So it was a little confusing. Um, And we talked about God 
but I sort of looked at God as something that was very separate to my life, almost mutually exclusive. So I always believed in God, but I never believed that God had a hand in my life. So through all the things that were going on, I never was like, okay, God, how could you make these awfully terrible things happen? But it was like, all right, God, you're there and I'm here and whatever. Um, I did I did pray to God, but I prayed for very, very bizarre things. Like, I prayed that I would break my arm so I could have a cast, so I could get some attention. That's a bizarre, like, maybe a therapist was in order at that point. Um, and I, you know, God did not let me break my arm, so I was frustrated. Um, I asked for material things. We didn't really grow up with very much. So I, and I grew up in a very, very wealthy part of England. <coughs> Um, but we were like immigrants and we were the, the strange people on the block who just sort of showed up. Hey, we're from Iran. How you doing? You know? Um, and so God was always very separate. It was only until I did my fourth step inventory that God entered my life. It wasn't even with the third step. It was for me, it was the fourth step because we did our, my, my fourth step. I think Heidi sat with me for about 10 or 12 hours through this fourth step. And we did it in chunks of four hours at a time, uh, three hours at a time. And we, we sat in cars, we sat in my living room, we sat on the grass at the park. Um, and when I was done, she said, all right, you're done with your fourth step. What are you going to do now? And I said, I think I'm going to go to the car wash and pick up the kids. And she said, why, why don't you not? Like, why don't you just go home and sit with it for a second? And it was the first time in my life where I realized that I am one of many and that I finally joined the realm of humans under God. That I wasn't that bad. And that everything I had done was not out of the realm of what humans do. And it was the first time God entered my life. So it's been, I've got a very, very close relationship with God. Um, There, I went through a really hard time in 2013 where I think I basically suffered a broken heart, not romantically, but a broken heart. And I really questioned God and I really questioned why. Why had God brought me to this point only to then not let what I not make what I thought was going to make happen? You know, it was like, all right, God, you you showed me all the signs to get me here. Why isn't it coming to fruition? And my friend who's very spiritual, she said, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He showed you all the signs because you had to get to the point that you had to get to. That's what had to happen, not necessarily the fruition of what you thought had to happen. So I did go through a couple of years of, of real depression and sadness and madness at God, but it, it never stopped me from working the program or still praying to God. So for me, God is, this is just my, my God. You can pick whatever God you want or not pick one, whatever. Um, for me, God is my creator who has a purpose for me on this planet and who has so much infinite love and a crazy sense of humor. And for me, God is almost like, has this open door policy where it's like, come in, babe, what's going on? You know, and I just sit and I pour out my heart and God just listens and gives me the strength to keep going. And giggle, like, really, sis? You're doing that again? All right, let's see how that goes. See you in the morning, you know. Um, So after that bout, I think it's just solidified. Um, And also, like, the work that I do 
puts me with God like every single time I go to work. <laughs> like if if I want to remember that I'm not in charge, right? Watch someone have a baby. <laughs> it's not you. It's not you. You know. So, um, and and when I'm not on a spiritual plane, I know because things get very loud, very busy. I get very right. You know, I got very upset at my mother-in-law a couple weeks ago. And she was wrong, you guys. She was wrong. She's also 95, okay? But she was wrong. And I felt myself, blah, 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 call my sister-in-law, tell my husband, blah, blah, blah. you know? And then at the end, I was like, dude, like, where's God in this? Right? You're the daughter-in-law. You're loving. You're kind. You have a program. Call her. See how she's doing. You know, I can be right or I can be happy. And with God, I can be happy. Okay, because my rightness was not going to be revealed in this scenario, if, if it ever is. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. My ideal spiritual path. Let me tell you ideal, and then we'll go to how some days it looks like. Um, ideally, it's to wake up and give myself an extra half hour in the morning, preferably before sunup, while it's still dark and my whole family is asleep. And I usually go sit outside and take my whole, I have like a, my spiritual books, and I start reading. And I, I start with anything. Sometimes I have outside literature that I read that just sort of brings me some peace. Um, I try to read some of the big book. I try to read either the Fourth Today or the Little Black AA book that my sponsor gave me. And then I do about 10 minutes of writing and then I pray, and then I try to do about five minutes of meditation with some, like, yogi gong music that I try to meditate to. Um, and, and sometimes that goes really well, and sometimes it's like, blah, 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 blah. So my friend in program said something really cool. She said, instead of meditation, why don't you do happy contemplation? I was like, that's really cool. So now I do happy contemplation, which is like, look at the leaves, listen to the birds. Look at the little moth that just flew by. Look at my feet. My family's safe. Like just happy contemplation almost for me does what meditation does because I can still think, but I'm not forced into a state of like, you know, meditation. Um, and sometimes the meditation works, but happy contemplation tends to work a lot better. And happy contemplation I can do anywhere. I can just take it with me. Um, there are days where it's just, all right, God, you know, I'm, I'm out of bed. Give me the strength to do my day. And at the end of the day, a thank you. And a little inventory, just an A-E-I-O-U. Was I abstinent? Did I exercise? What did I do for me? What did I do for others? What's going on with my feelings? Um, and then I always pray before I go to work or before I, I show up at any, any place where I am to be of service that God work through me, that I am sound-minded, that I am out of self-obsession. And then I go through the seventh-step prayer. My creator, I should have, you should have all of me, the good and bad. And then I list my character defects that often come up at work. And I pray to be astute so that I don't make any mistakes, um, whether intentionally or because of my character defects. And I ask God to allow me to be a vessel of, of thy will and move on with my day. But ideally, it's that half-hour thing that works magic. And I told Leslie, I said, Les, it's totally placebo effect. And she got really offended. She's like, it is not placebo effect. It is God. <laughs> I'm like, okay. But the days that I don't do it, I feel it. 
I really feel it. And the days that I do it, it's like, ah, grace. So there's something, I think. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, do any of my daughters have issues with foods? And if so, how have I dealt with them? Um, I have daughters. Okay, so daughters have body image stuff in Los Angeles. <laughs> okay, it's, it's just sort of like... Um, what I've always told them is... So long as you're healthy and you're eating in a loving way, that is what's going to bring you to your best you. Always. Um... I think some of my daughters have more of an attraction to food than others. I'm not going to mention their names because they might listen. So um, some are a little bit more interested. But, but I think that the less attention I bring to it, the more I normalize it, the better. Because, guys, the truth is I can be like, I'm a hardcore sugar addict. Okay? Most people are addicted to sugar. When you, do, when you look at the studies, sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine. For anybody, not just for us, right? So I have to, like, normalize the food thing. Like, yeah, babe, I want chocolate cake, too. You know, but you haven't eaten in six hours. Let's have, like, a meal, and then we'll talk about dessert. And then ultimately the dessert will sort of go away. Um, I don't hate my body. I do not hate my body. My body, you guys, is fucking awesome. Like, considering all the things that it's gone through, right, the fact that through all that shit, I did not get sick, right? My body held up and then was able to have three kids of its own. It's kind of incredible. And it's still going, right? That's pretty awesome. How can I hate that body? Because it's got a couple extra pounds on it. So I I always give that self-love to my kids. Like, I will put my hands on their belly and be like, I love your belly, you know? Um, Or, wow, you just did that at PE. That's awesome. Look how healthy you are. So that's what I've always tried to do. And I will tell you, when I look back at kid pictures of me, there was nothing wrong with my body ever. There was nothing wrong with my body. But once the abuse set in and puberty set in, people started commenting on my body. That's when I started eating. Had I not had that judgment, I don't think I would have gone on eating. So that's that. Thanks for your question. Anyone else? Yeah. Do you have any experience of Complacency. Do I have any experience with complacency in my program? Um, yeah, someone once said the only way to cruise is downhill. And ultimately, I'll find myself rageful, angry, judgmental, pissy, a little gossipy. And then I'll do a little program inventory and I'll be like, gone to a meeting in like 10 days right I haven't talked to my sponsor since last Monday what is going on um so I I, are there times where I want a week of program to carry me over to the next week if I'm really spiritually filled that can happen but it runs out it runs out real fast and I know it runs out because my reaction to things is much faster and a little crazier instead of like Um, Thank you. Instead of like, all right, that happened. What do I do now? I think when I become complacent with program, I lose my pause. And again, someone told me, these are all quotes, guys. These are not my things. Um, God is in the pause. So if I lose the pause, I lose God. 
So when I find myself becoming complacent, that's what's going on. Uh, with sponsees, you guys, I can't really force anyone to do anything. Like, Leslie has never forced me to do anything. She'll be like, did you do that writing? And I'll be like, ah. She's like, all right, call me, read it tomorrow. I can't bring anyone to recovery. I can't make anyone stay in recovery. I can't make anyone do it my way. The only thing I can do is pass along my program, and that person will take it and have their own journey with their program. Have I had, I always do a 30-day like trial period with new sponsees, and if it doesn't work, like within a few weeks, we're like, you know what, it's not working. Like, I love you. You'll find another sponsor. I'll find another sponsee. It's all good. So I can't get on a sponsee's case for being complacent because I can get complacent but when they come to me and they say their meals got bigger or they got into a fight with someone at work and they behaved shittily then it's an opportunity for me to take help them take an inventory of their program like what's missing because the food is usually the last place to hit the food is just like that. All right, we're in the hole. <laughs> okay, what just happened? Where are my meetings? Where is my step work? Where is my big book? If it's buried like somewhere way under the couch and I haven't pulled it out, that's where the problem lies. So, it's been my experience. Yeah, Casey. Thank you. Considering your experience with not being heard, mm. how do you deal with not being heard now when your head tells you whoever it is is never going to hear you? Considering my experience with not being heard, how do I deal with my head when it tells me that whoever is in front of me is never going to hear me? I don't have many people who don't hear me. And if I do, they're not in my life so much. I think what I've experienced is that not everyone needs to hear me. Right? Like, my story is my story, and I don't have to go around telling everyone about it to be heard, to be understood. Um, and you, I love the prayer of St. Francis because it's to understand rather than to be understood. And the truth is that very few people have had an experience exactly like mine. But many people have had aspects of my experience from where I can connect. So, so it's in finding the similarities and not the differences and not expecting everyone to hear me. Because... Sometimes I feel like when I feel unheard, I'm either not hearing myself, or I'm not turning to God, or I'm having very high expectations of another human. Because not everyone can hear me, not everyone wants to hear me, <laughs> not everyone is even, on, is even registering my voice. Um, and, 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 you know, I've talked about this with, with friends and family and people in the program. Some people can't even register what happened to you because it's so far off anything that is graspable to them. It's like talking to me about astrophysics. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't work at SpaceX. Like, I have no idea. You know what I mean? Um, but does SpaceX exist? Is there astrophysics? Yes. But not every, I'm not going to be able to communicate in the same language with everyone. So I have a posse of people who do get my language, who, when I'm triggered, when I'm sad, when I'm not being understood, I can turn to. But I know that the times where I feel the most victim-y and feeling sorry for myself that nobody gets me, I'm so unique, um, I'm just not working the program hard enough. And I'm not turning to God and I'm not being in service enough. Because if you want to stop feeling like you're not being heard, stop and work with the sponsee and let, let them be heard. 
um, that's usually what works. Thank you. Preguntas? How much time, Carol? Uh, you have uh, one minute. A whole minute for a question. Yeah. Oh, I haven't done much. I'll be honest with you. Um, like at the intergroup level and stuff, I haven't done it. I wish I could say I've, I have. Um, I've done a lot of service at the group level. Uh, the most service I've done at, at a higher level is to um, volunteer at the birthday party. Um, either setting up or selling stuff or speaking, that's the highest I've gotten. So something to aspire to. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys.